Jesus did pay it all. And that's why we're here tonight, and that's really the theme of this whole evening. I was um, thinking as Brother Tom was reading there from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to do that. Uh, he did not find joy in bringing a bruising upon his son. Uh, the joy was in knowing what that would accomplish for you and for me. Uh, that was what pleased him. Uh, who for the joy, the Bible says, that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. <laughs> we have such a great Savior, don't we? Uh, we're certainly undeserving of such love in the sacrifice that has been made. Uh, but we're here to commemorate that tonight. And so I would, if you would, uh, if you would take your Bibles, I'd ask you to take them and go to Deuteronomy chapter number 16, please. The 16th chapter in the book of Deuteronomy, not necessarily a place that we would think of going on a night in which we're going to observe the Lord's table, but I think you'll understand why we've come here in just a moment. Deuteronomy chapter number 16. Of course, we understand that so much of the Old Testament, really every page of the Old Testament is pointing to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, so much of the things that God asks of his people the things that he asked them to do, the reason why he took it so seriously is because those things were types. They were pictures of his son and what Jesus would accomplish with his life. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse number 1, Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover unto the Lord thy God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord thy God brought thee forth out of Egypt by night. Thou shalt therefore sacrifice the Passover unto the Lord thy God of the flock and the herd in the place which the Lord shall choose to place his name there. Now look at verse number three. Thou shalt eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days shalt thou eat unleavened bread therewith, even the bread of affliction. For thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt in haste, that thou mayest remember the day when thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt all the days of thy life. If you're in the habit of marking your Bible, you may wish to underline or circle or highlight the phrase there in verse number three where the Bible says, remember the day. Remember the day. You know, as human beings, we, we mark our lives and we mark even human history by significant days. Yesterday, my wife and I celebrated a significant day in our lives. We celebrated 23 years of marriage. On August the 5th of 2000, we stood right here on this very platform and we committed our lives to one another. And so each year, as many of you do, those of you that would be married, you, you take on that specific date in which you committed your life to your spouse, perhaps you take some time to remember and to celebrate what you have together, what God has given you as a, as a married couple. Next weekend, as a church, we will celebrate 65 years of ministry. As a church, we will come together and we will remember the day that Cleveland Baptist Church began in a house not far from here with just 11 people in attendance on that first Sunday. It's special to us, though, though most of us were not there on that day. It's special to us because of what this church has come to mean to us. And so we set aside some time to remember the day. In a month or so, as a nation, we will pause to remember 
the lives lost 22 years ago on September the 11th. We do that every year. It's not just any ordinary day. It's a unique day. It's a special day in which we remember the lives of so many that were taken in an instant. What started out as such a beautiful day turned into a tragic day. It's good for us to remember that day, to remember what took place on that day. It's good to remember the blessings that have been bestowed upon us. It's good to remember difficult days and to be reminded of God's faithfulness and how even in those difficult days, he was good to bring us through. In our text, we discover Moses' instruction concerning the Passover and the various things that were associated with this feast and this observance. The the Passover was observed during the month Abib, according to verse number one, right around our month of April. And it included two elements. It included a sacrificed lamb, Primarily, those are the two things that he's focusing on here, and it included unleavened bread. Now, certainly there were other things, but those, are the, those were the two main things. Those are two, the, the two focused things. And again, we remind you of the typology and the fact that these things are pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the lamb, of course, is going uh, to represent uh, Jesus Christ and his sacrificed body. And, and, uh, and of course, the, uh, the other elements that are, that are mentioned there, the unleavened bread speaks of Christ being the sinless son of God. The lamb sacrificed, according to the instruction given by Moses, was to be the, a male of the first year and without any blemish. In other words, God wanted their absolute best. And here's why. He wanted their best because someday he was going to give his best by sending his son to die for us. So the picture is incomplete. If the children of Israel, if they, if they take from their herd something that is maimed or something that is sick or not well or not whole, and they present that to God as a sacrifice on that particular day, the picture is incomplete. It is unacceptable to God. It has to be a lamb of the first, it has to be a male, Because Jesus would be a young man, it would have to be a male, of the first year and without any blemish, no spots, no problems whatsoever with the lamb and with its body and what was being offered. The unleavened bread, of course, represented that which had not been tainted or stained by sin. In our Bible, we discover that leaven is a picture of sin. Not only was Christ the best that God had to offer, but he also lived his entire life He was surrounded by wickedness and surrounded by sinners, and yet he never sinned a single time. There was no sin. There was no flaws. There was no wickedness found in him whatsoever. Think about this. No leaven. No leaven can be found in Christ's life. Therefore, during the week of the Passover in which they were observing it, God said to his people, there can be no leaven found in your home. The only thing that you can eat for those seven days is unleavened bread. The Passover for the Jews was meant to remind them of something. It was to help them to remember a day. The day in which they left Egypt, they did so by night. And by observing this feast every year, it would enable them to remember this day. Notice, notice he says, all the days of thy life. God says, I never want you to forget. I don't ever want there to come a time in your life in which you forget what I did for you that night and how I brought you out and what I'm going to do for you in the future. Can I just say that while we are no longer under the obligation, uh, we're no longer under the obligation as a, uh, as, a, as a church or as Christians to observe the Passover, 
We are, however, given an ordinance as a local church that is designed to do the same thing that this Passover feast was designed to help them with. And that is, we've been given something to help us to remember, listen, to remember some significant days in our lives, in our world, that have a particular influence on us as believers. So God, just as he instituted a Passover feast in the Old Testament, he instituted a supper for us as well. This supper was instituted by Christ while in the upper room with his disciples, the night night in which he was betrayed and and arrested. On this night, Christ invited his followers to eat unleavened bread, signifying his body that was to be broken. And he invited them to drink fruit of the vine, signifying his blood that was to be shed for them. He said as much on that night. In Matthew 26, verses 26 to 28, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, This is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So understand this, that just as the Old Testament Jews were given a feast to observe the Passover, this observance that we're going to participate in tonight, it was intended to help us remember the day To remember the day, just as the children of Israel were remembering the day they walked out of Egypt free, we are to remember some important days in our lives as well. As you enter into this service, it is vital, it is vital that you remember some days in your life, in the life of our world. So tonight, as we think about this theme of remembering the day, I want to invite you, number one, to remember the day that Christ died for the sins of all men. Can we pause for a moment and can we remember the day? So I wasn't there that day. I wasn't alive then. No, I wasn't either. But we get a pretty clear picture of what transpired on that day and what that day must have been like. The elements that you will soon hold in your hand, they represent his beaten, broken body and his blood that he willingly shed. And I remind you, listen, he did all of this for you and for me. The Bible reveals that this day, the day that Christ died for the sins of all men, was a day unlike any other in the history of this world. Do you know some very, very unique and special things happened on this day? They're all recorded for us in Matthew 27, so I want you to take your Bibles and go to Matthew 27 if you would. There are, uh, there are four very unusual occurrences that transpired on the day that Jesus Christ hung on a cross for you and me. And I, and I think in some respects that, that they happen certainly to help people that were around at that time to understand there's something different about this man who's hanging on this middle cross. But I think they're also given to us to remind us that this day is a day unlike any other. I'm going to show some signs to you so that you never forget what happened and what transpired on this day. Would you look in Matthew 27 and verse number 45? The Bible says in Matthew 27 and verse number 45, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. Now the Jewish day was marked a little differently than ours was. They would work, their work day was from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. 
And so the 6 a.m. would be the first hour. 7 a.m. would be the second and 8 a.m. the third and so forth and so on. So when we come, when we come to the sixth hour, if you're understanding this, we, we would say, well, that's noon. That's the middle of the day. So from the sixth hour, noon, to the ninth hour, three o'clock p.m., something very, very strange happens. The Bible tells us what it is. The Bible says that darkness covered the whole land. That's unusual because, because from noon to three, it should be the brightest time of the day. The sun is at its peak in the sky. It is shining as brightly as it will all day long. And yet on the day that Jesus Christ died, remember this, remember, darkness covered the whole land. That's not the only unusual thing that happened on this day. Look in verse number 50. Matthew 27, verse number 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain or two from the top to the bottom. This happened, this happened of its own volition. If you were standing there watching, in other words, you you would not have seen someone with a pair of scissors snipping from the top to the bottom. You would not have seen someone grab hold of that curtain, that veil, and rip it in two. No, there there was no man involved in this. But the Bible tells us that when Jesus cried out, it is finished, and he gave up the ghost, something very unusual happened. The Bible says that the veil in the temple that separated the common man from the holiest of holies, that kept anyone from going into where the presence of God resided, the Bible tells us in that moment that Jesus gave up the ghost, that veil was was rent. It was torn from top to bottom in two without the aid or assistance of any man or any tool or any device. That's unusual, friend. Something, something's going on here. Something's happening today. For the last three hours, there's been complete darkness and it's the middle of the day. It shouldn't be like this. Something's going on here. We just got word that there in the temple, the holiest place that no one's ever been able to look upon unless you're, a, unless you're the high priest, the, the temple veil was torn in two. There was no man there doing it. And now everyone can see into the holy place. Something strange is happening. You might want to mark this day down. You might want to remember this day because this is a day unlike any other. Look in verse 51 again. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain. From the top to the bottom. Notice the third unusual occurrence. And the earth did quake. And the rocks rent. Earthquakes, I suppose, depending on where you live, are maybe a little bit more common than other places. I still remember being in first grade. I think the year was 1986. I was in the classroom of Mrs. Engel, who I think is here tonight. And we were at recess. It was the middle of the day. I was in first grade. And the earth quaked. I remember it as a little boy. I remember I was playing on the ground. It was a day in which maybe it was too cold to go outside. And all I can remember from that day, all I can remember was the books of my teacher falling off of her desk without anyone touching them. And I just have to tell you, I wanted to go home <laughs> immediately. You know, somebody, somebody get my parents, somebody get me out of here because this is not supposed to happen. I was only in first grade. I was a little boy, but I knew, I knew that was unusual. Some of you have lived in some places in which maybe earthquakes are a little bit more common. I think that's perhaps the last earthquake of significance that has happened around here, at least that I can remember. These things don't happen very often. The Bible says that 
the time of Jesus' death, the earth began to quake. The Bible says the rocks rent. In other words, the earthquake was so violent, it was so, it was so catastrophic that the rocks r- literally were torn in two. Well, something unusual is happening on this day, but this is far, this is far from the most unusual thing. Would you look with me in verse number 52? And the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose. And came out of the graves after his resurrection. And went into the holy city. And appeared unto many. Well, Mark that day down, friend. That's an unusual day. Those things, those things don't typically happen. There's, there's not typically... Darkness that covers the land. Not for three hours, there's not. Given to understand, sometime next year, I think sometime next spring, we are in the line of, a, of an eclipse that's going to happen here. And, and we're in one of the spots in which it's going to be a total eclipse. And it'll just be for a minute or two. My understanding is people travel all over, all over this country to this place and other places that will be in this line to see that. On the day Jesus died, it was complete and total darkness for three hours. The day that Jesus died, a temple veil was torn from top to bottom. The day that Jesus died, the earth quaked and the rocks ran. But listen, on the day that Jesus died, the graves, they came open. And the, and the many of the bodies of the saints which slept arose. I, I don't know that I ever saw it until, uh, until I was studying and preparing for this message. But it was interesting to me that they did, not, they did not appear. They did not come out of the graves. Those saints did not come out of the graves until after his resurrection. They went into the Holy Spirit and appeared unto many. You know, you know what God was telling? You know what God was telling everyone? God was telling everyone, listen, the resurrection of Jesus guarantees it'll do the same thing for you. That's what the resurrection does. How do you know? How do you know your dear loved ones are going to come out of that grave someday? Because God already proved that the bodies of loved ones came out of the grave. When Jesus Christ arose, man, that, that sealed the deal for all of us who have our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So remember the day, friend. Remember the day God gives us some very, very unusual things that happen to help us to remember the day. And I have to tell you, it was quite a day. A day worth remembering because of all of these historic occurrences. But listen, the bread and the cup that you and I are going to hold in our hands, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily cause us to remember the darkness. It doesn't cause us to remember the temple veil being torn from top to bottom. It doesn't really, I, I, I don't know about you, but I've never sat in my pew and held my, my, my unleavened bread and held my fruit of the vine and thought to myself, boy, when Jesus died, this reminds me of the earthquake. There's nothing wrong with those things. But that's not, that's not what these elements are designed to help us to remember. Here, here's, what, here's what those elements help you to remember, help me to remember. They're designed to remind us of these truths. There are two of them. Number one, Here's the first truth, and that is this. I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. When I hold the bread and when I hold the cup, I'm reminded that I'm a sinner. You see, why? You see here's the point. The death of Christ should never have happened. Shouldn't have happened. The Bible tells us in Romans 5 and verse number 12, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So it's obvious, isn't it, that, that death is connected to sin. That the sin of mankind brings death. 
And when I say the death of Jesus Christ should have never happened, the Bible teaches us in Hebrews 4 and verse number 15 that Jesus Christ had no sin. That he was tempted, just like you and I are tempted, but he was without sin. Therefore, because he had no sin, Jesus should not have died. And yet he did. How do we justify that? Well, the Bible is clear that Christ did not die for his own sins, but that Christ died for my sins. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You heard it read just a moment ago, 1 Peter 3 and verse number 18, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Listen, the horrific nature of his death, which is represented with a broken cracker and with a little portion of fruit of the vine, speaks of the horrific death of Jesus and it reveals just how much God hates sin and how harshly sin and sinners will be judged. I just had this thought this week as I was preparing for the service. I don't ever want to forget it. I think everyone needs to hear it. And that is this. God did not withhold his wrath for sin from his son, Jesus Christ. And if God did not withhold his wrath for sin on his own son, Jesus Christ, then you mark it down. He will not hold back his wrath on those who die in their sins either. Say, well, God is love. God would never do something like that. Well, didn't God pour out his wrath on his own son for sin? He'll do the same thing, friend, on those who die in their sin. The next time you and I perhaps are tempted to dismiss our sin as no big deal, I want you to remember the day Christ died for you. The cup and the bread don't just represent the fact that I'm a sinner. But they're designed to also teach me this sacred truth. Not only am I a sinner, but God loves me. That's what the bread and that's what the cup represent. That's what they're designed to communicate, that God loves me. See, the message of the cross is more than just a message on God's wrath and how much he hates and judges sin. No, the message of the cross is just how much God loves sinners. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Gave his only begotten son to do what? Gave his only begotten son to experience the wrath and the horror and the judgment of the cross. First John 3, 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. So as you hold the bread, as you hold the cup, may they be a reminder of those two great truths. I'm a great sinner, and God loves sinners just like me. Remember the day Christ died. But number two, remember the day that you were saved. Tonight is all about remembering some days. Remember the day that Christ died for you. Remember what transpired that day, and really remember what it means. But then remember the day that you were saved. You know, I hope you have many great days in your life to celebrate and to rejoice in. There's the day of one's birth. There's the day they take their first step. The day they start kindergarten. The day they obtain their driver's license. The day they graduate from high school. The day they leave for college. The day they get married. 
the day they have their children. The list could go on and on of good days. All of these are blessed and full of good memories. They're worth remembering, no doubt about it. But if you are saved, there is no greater day than the day that you trusted Christ. Just as God wanted his people to remember when they left physical Egypt and he institutes the Passover, God also designed a supper to help you and I to remember the day that we left spiritual Egypt, where we, we left the bondage of our sin and we moved into the freedom of Christ and the new life that he gave us. He wants us to remember that day. What do you remember about that day? Some of you, that day hasn't happened yet. You need to be saved. You need to be saved tonight. You don't need to wait another day. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, today could be the day that you remember for the rest of your life, even for the rest of all eternity. You remember the day that you cried out to Jesus and repented of your sin and trusted Christ. You ever sometimes find that it's easy to get so busy with life that we don't think much about about the day that we got saved and maybe even about how it transforms us? I just have to say that it's good for us. It's good for us to set the time aside and to reverently stop like we're doing tonight and remember that Christ died for us and how we learned of his death for us and then how we responded by faith to his free gift of eternal life. Think about tonight, think about, think about where you were before that day and think about where you are today and rejoice. Remember the day that you were saved. And then can I say thirdly, remember, remember where you are today. Remember where you are today. Three days that I think we ought to remember that this supper teaches us to remember. You say, what are you talking about here with this final one? Well, go with me to 1 Corinthians 11, would you? 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. Paul is writing here. He gives instruction about the Lord's Supper. It's the most comprehensive instruction or teaching that we get about the Lord's Supper in all of the Bible. He says in verse 26, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Here in our text, Paul writes, and he warns against eating this bread and drinking this cup unworthily. Now, I just just have to tell you that there's not a person in this room that is worthy to approach this table. There's not a person in this room that is worthy of Christ's saving and redeeming work in their life. None of us are. But he saves us anyways by his great grace and by his great mercy. And because of Christ's saving and redeeming work in our lives, listen, it affords us, listen, it affords us a seat at this table in which we would not have been able to sit here otherwise. Though you may be saved, And though you may be on your way to heaven, it is possible, it is possible to live in a way that is not pleasing to the Lord, leading, listen, to a breach or a separation in our fellowship with him. And can I just remind you that the Lord's Supper is designed to do two things for the church body when they partake of it. Number one, it is designed to unite a church. The Lord's Supper unites a church. Now, as the pastor here of this church, you've given me, you've given me certain responsibilities, as a church, we sort of have written into our calendar two times in which we observe the Lord's Supper. And those two times are usually the Wednesday before Easter Sunday. We do that because it is the time closest to when Jesus would have instituted the Supper. It might even be the very night 
depending on when you believe, Jesus was arrested and, of course, crucified. And, and there's lots of different thoughts and ideas on that. And so we as a church just are in the habit of doing it always on the week before Easter. And then we also have a time in which we do it the week before Thanksgiving or the week of Thanksgiving, Tuesday night of Thanksgiving. And we, we do it because we're, if, if we're thankful for anything, we must be thankful for Christ's sacrifice for us. So those two times make sense. But you as a church, you've allowed me, you've allowed me as a pastor to take some liberty to perhaps add it at some other times is just I feel it's necessary, I felt led of the Lord to do so. I mentioned at the beginning of our service that we're celebrating next week our 65th anniversary. And the Lord just prompted me. can't fully explain it, but I feel like he just prompted me, you know, in preparation for that. Perhaps that's something we ought to do, and it might help us just to unite a little bit more. And that's not that I sense that there's some major division in the church. I don't sense that at all. I just felt like the Lord was leading us in this direction. And I remind you that the Lord's Supper, it unites a church. And Paul, I have to tell you, he was troubled by the division that he found in the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse number 18, it says, For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. The thing, listen, the thing that was designed to unite them, the Lord's Supper, he writes in, in further verses here that it was not accomplishing its purpose. This church actually had taken the Lord's Supper and was abusing it. And because of the, the way they were approaching it, they were, they were actually driving a, a deeper division between them than existed before. And that deeper division came about as a result of the Lord's Supper. So what were some of the things that they were doing? Well, it seems like instead of eating unleavened bread and drinking fruit of the vine, this church was literally bringing their own meal. Those that had the food were bringing their own meal, their own supper. And those who had much at that point in time, they were filled because they had all of this food to eat. But the problem is in the church, there were some people who didn't have as much and they didn't have a meal to bring. And they sat and they watched the others eat. And this was what constituted the Lord's Supper for the church at Corinth. And Paul says, you, you've missed the picture completely. You have absolutely violated the picture of what this is supposed to represent and what it's supposed to accomplish. This led, led to them literally despising the church and shaming those who were poor and needy. Look in verse number 22. He says, what? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise you the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. So Paul says, I can't praise you for this practice. Because it led to the opposite effect of what it was intended to do. Instead of uniting them, it was dividing them. With Paul's instruction obeyed, listen, you and I can gather here tonight in unity. Now think about this. As the plate is passed, everyone gets the same thing. We get the same thing. We get a little broken piece of a cracker that is unleavened. We get the same thing. We get a, we get a little cup of juice, fruit of the vine. Those that are quote-unquote great sinners don't get a bigger cracker and a bigger cup of juice. Those who are quote-unquote not as bad, maybe you've been around for a while and maybe your life is in order and you've got everything together, you you don't get a small... No, we all get the same thing. And we're all reminded of the same truths. And we're all overwhelmed with the same gratitude and thanksgiving to God for His willingness to suffer in this way. And yet, can I remind you that it is possible to sit here and it's possible even to hold these elements and to still tolerate division among us. As I read this text, I'm just here to tell you, I would not take this supper until I was fully unified with my brothers and sisters in Christ to the best of my ability. 
This supper is intended to help me inspect where I am today. That's why I'm saying, remember where you are today. Are you living in unity with your fellow brother or sister in Christ? Are you in unity with the local church that you're a part of? This supper is intended to help me inspect these things. If unity is lacking in my life, I have a great opportunity to fix it before I come to this table and before I eat this bread or drink this cup unworthily. Remember Paul's instruction? Say, what does true biblical unity look like? Well, here it is, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife and vainglory. Does this, does this look like you in the way that you're living? Does this look like us? If not, we have an opportunity to correct it before we come to this table. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. But can I say secondly, the Lord's Supper not only unifies the church, but it purifies the church. That's why Paul said in verse number 31, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. You know what I'm inviting you to do? I'm inviting you to judge yourself tonight. Judge yourself. It says, let a man examine himself, verse 28, and let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. This table is not a place you want to come while tolerating some sin, justifying, excusing some sin and wickedness in your life. In other words, if you know, you know there's something that you have tolerated that has not been confessed and has not been repented of and has not been made right with the Lord, I would recommend you sit this one out, my friend. Because if not, you come to this table unworthily. You have an opportunity to judge yourself in this very moment, in this very hour. You have an opportunity in just a moment to confess anything that's between you and the Lord, anything that's between you and another brother or sister. And I would do that. If you don't do that, I would not. I would not reach into that plate and take that cup and take that piece of bread. When we come here, we are confronted with the need to be pure and holy just like he is pure and holy. And so is there unconfessed sin in your life that is yet to be repented of? The Lord's Supper is designed to help us not only remember the days of our past, but it's also designed to remind us of where we are now and where we should be. And that's what this is all about. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment.